0: pain, difficult situations, two constants we experience in life, and if you're like me, maybe you're tempted to run. Today, you're about to discover how pain can be a good thing. In this episode, we learn why the most unlikely of circumstances can lead us to success and unbelievable growth. Let's be leaders who embrace the hard things, but first, let's learn why. Welcome to the readout podcast. I'm your host, Jake Welchens, and for the past 10 years, I've been helping young leaders reach their potential at readout. Our belief is that to lead out, you have to read out and to read out means to read well and to read broadly. Almost every great leader in history has been a reader and we wholeheartedly agree with Margaret floor when she said today, a reader tomorrow, a leader. Reading is not optional to leadership. It's not the side dish. It's the main course. And in order to become a great leader, you have to dig in. But here's the problem. We here at Readout know that in this day and age, time and energy is hard to come by. My hope is to save you that time and energy and bring you the best books that can have impact in your life right now. Then I want to teach you to get the most out of these books so that you can become the leader you've always dreamed of being faster than you ever imagined. Our dream is to create a movement of young adults passionate about reading and dangerously effective at leading. Thank you to everyone sharing and reviewing us on social media. I truly appreciate that you guys would take the time to do that. We absolutely need your help building this movement and it really means a lot to me that you guys are taking the time to share it with your friends or review it on Apple Podcast or whatever you're doing. We sincerely appreciate it. We have to build this thing together. There's no way I could do it by myself, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to episode three of our new series called Your Next Chapter. In this series, we'll take one of our recommended books and then read and analyze one of its best chapters. From start to finish, we'll have you pumping literary iron on the best content from the best books. Think of it as a crash course for instant application or a mini audiobook where you get to skip the fluff. At Readout, we don't just read books, we apply them and master them. So here's to today's chapter. Today's chapter comes from David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. If you want to check out our episode about the book, go back to The Book That Saves You from Success. This is one of my personal favorites, by the way. But if you want to listen to it, go back and check it out. You won't regret it. Uh, This is one of those books where it's really hard to choose just one chapter because they're all so Good, I love Malcolm Gladwell, but this was the chapter we felt like would be most useful to you all as we transitioned from a crazy 2020 to an uncertain and sometimes painful 2021. It fits our time like a glove in terms of its usefulness and I can't wait to share it with you. What we're gonna to do today is, is read the chapter together and I'll stop two to three times to further elaborate on a couple key sections to get you applying this amazing piece of leadership art. And without further ado, Let's jump in. Chapter 5. Emil J. Freireich. How Jay did it? I don't know. When Jay Freireich was very young, his father died. The Freireichs were Hungarian immigrants who were running a restaurant in Chicago. It was just after the stock market crash in 1929. They lost everything. They found him in the bathroom, Freireich said. I think it was suicide because he felt all alone. He had come to Chicago because he had a brother there. When the crash occurred, the brother left town. He had a wife, two small children, no money, a restaurant gun. He must have been pretty desperate. Reich's mother went to work in a sweatshop, sewing brims on hats. She made two cents a day. She didn't speak much English. She had to work 18 hours a day, seven days a week to make enough to have an apartment for us to rent, Freireich went on. We never saw her. We had a little apartment on the west side of Humboldt Park, bordering the ghetto. She couldn't leave a two-year-old and a five-year-old all alone, so she found an immigrant Irish lady who worked for room and board. My parent, from the age of two, was this Irish maid. We loved her. She was my mother. Then, when I was nine, my mother met a Hungarian man who had lost his wife and had one son, and she married him. It was a marriage of convenience. He couldn't take care of his son by himself, and she didn't have anybody. He was really bitter, shriveled guy. So they got married, and my mother left the sweatshop and appeared back on the scene. And they couldn't afford the maid anymore, so they fired her. They fired my mother. I never forgave my mother for that. The family moved from one apartment to another. They had protein one day a week. Freireich remembers being sent from store to store looking for a bottle of milk for four cents because the normal price of five cents was more than the family could afford. He spent his days on the street. He stole. He wasn't close to his sister. She was more of a disciplinarian than a friend. He didn't like his stepfather. In any case, the marriage didn't last. He didn't like his mother either. Whatever mind she had was destroyed in the sweatshops, he said. She was an angry person, and when she married this ugly guy who brought this person in, my half brother, who got half of everything I used to get, and then she fired my mother, his voice trailed off. Fryreich was sitting at his desk. He was wearing a white coat. Everything he was talking about was both long ago and, in another more important sense, not long ago at all. I can't remember her ever hugging or kissing me or anything like that, he said. She never talked about my father. I have no idea what. Whether he was nice to her or mean, I never heard a word. Do I ever think about what he might have been like? All the time. I have one picture. Freireich turned in his chair and clicked on a file of pictures on his computer. Up came a grainy early 20th century photograph of a man who, not surprisingly, looked a lot like Freireich himself. That's the only picture of him my mother ever had, he said. The edges of the photo were uneven. It had been cropped from a much larger family photograph. I asked about the Irish maid who raised him. What was her name? He stopped short. A rare pause for him. I don't know, he said. It will pop into my head, I'm sure. He sat still for a long moment and concentrated. My sister would remember. My mother would remember. But they are no longer alive. I have no living relatives, just two cousins. He paused again. I want to call her Mary. And that may actually be her name, but my mother's name was Mary. So I may be confusing it. Freireich was 84 years old when we talked. But it would be a mistake to call this an age related memory lapse. Jay Freireich does not have memory lapses. I interviewed him for the first time one spring, and then again six months later, and again after that. And every time he would recall dates and names and facts with clock like precision. And if he went over the same ground as he had on the previous occasion, he would stop himself and say, I know, I said this to you before. He could not retrieve the name of the woman who raised him because everything from those years was so painful that it had been pushed to the furthest recesses of his mind. In the years leading up to the Second World War, the British government was worried. If in the event of war, the German Air Force launched a major air offensive against London, the British military command believed that there was nothing they could do to stop it. Basil Little, Hart, one of the foremost theorists of the day, estimated that in the first week of any German attack, London could see a quarter of a million civilian deaths and injuries. Winston Churchill described London as the greatest target in the world, a kind of tremendous fat, valuable cow tied up to attract the beast of prey. He predicted that the city would be so helpless in the face of the attack that between three and four million Londoners would flee to the countryside. In 1937, on the eve of war, the British military command issued a report with a direct prediction of all. A sustained German bombing attack would leave 600,000 dead and 1.2 million wounded and create mass panic in the streets. People would refuse to go to work. Industrial production would grind to a halt. The army would be useless against the Germans because it would be preoccupied with keeping order among the millions of panicked civilians. All right, let's step out for a minute. This is a great book, and this is a great chapter, but let's use this moment for perspective. I like to consider how this story applies to me before I dive further into it. Jay's life was unimaginably hard. I've been through a pandemic in 2020, just like all of you and the mental and emotional stress was trying, but I need to be constantly reminded that there are people who have faced far worse than me and succeeded. That gives me perspective and strangely much hope when I face tough times. When facing tough times, I need to be reminded that I'm not the only one and I'm not the worst by far. That helps me avoid the death trap of self-pity. There are strange parallels between the number of dead Brits in this prediction to the death toll of COVID today, no doubt. There is always strife or difficulty in every day and age, but we need to be reminded of that. Today, this chapter relates to you. So let's take the rest in together. Okay, back to the book. The country's planners briefly considered building a massive network of underground bomb shelters across London, but they abandoned the plan out of fear that if they did, the people who took refuge there would never come out. They set up several psychiatric hospitals just outside the city limits to handle whatever they expected would be a flood of psychological casualties. There is every chance, the report said, that this could cost us the war. In the fall of 1940, the long-anticipated attack began. Over a period of eight months, beginning with 57 consecutive nights of devastating bombardment, German bombers thundered across the skies above London, dropping tens of thousands of high-explosive bombs and more than a million incendiary devices. 40,000 people were killed, and another 46,000 were injured. A million buildings were damaged or destroyed. In the city's east end, entire neighborhoods were laid waste. It was everything the British government officials had feared, except that every one of their predictions about how Londoners would react turned out to be wrong. The panic never came. The psychiatric hospitals built on the outskirts of London were switched over to military use because no one showed up. Many women and children were evacuated to the countryside as the bombing started, but people who needed to stay in the city, by and large, stayed. As the blitz continued, as the German assaults grew heavier and heavier, the British authorities began to observe, to their astonishment, Not just courage in the face of the bombing, but something closer to indifference. In October 1940, I had occasion to drive through southeast London just after a series of attacks on that district. One English psychiatrist wrote just after the war ended, Every hundred yards or so, it seemed that there was a bomb, crater, or wreckage of what had once been a house or a shop. The siren blew its warning, and I looked to see what would happen. A nun seized the hand of a child she was escorting and hurried on. She and I seemed to be the only ones who had heard the warning. Small boys continued to play all over the pavement. Shoppers went on haggling. A policeman directed traffic in majestic boredom, and the bicyclists defied death and the traffic laws. No one, so far as I could see, even looked into the sky. I think you'll agree this is hard to believe. The blitz was war. The exploding bombs sent deadly shrapnel flying in every direction. The incendiaries left a different neighborhood in flames every night. More than a million people lost their homes. Thousands crammed into makeshift shelters and subway stations every night. Outside, between the thunder of planes overhead, the thud of explosions, the rattle of anti-aircraft guns, and the endless wails of ambulances, fire engines, and warning sirens, the noise was unrelenting. In one survey of Londoners on the night of September 12, 1940, a third said that they had gotten no sleep the night before, and another third said they got fewer than four hours. Can you imagine how New Yorkers would have reacted if one of their office towers had been reduced to rubble, not just once, but every night for two and a half months? The typical explanation for the reaction of Londoners is the British stiff upper lip, the stoicism said to be inherent in English character. Not surprisingly, this is the explanation most favored by the British themselves. But one thing that soon became clear was that it wasn't just the British who behaved this way. Civilians from other countries also turned out to be unexpectedly resilient in the face of bombing. Bombing, it became clear, didn't have the effect that everyone had thought it would have. It wasn't until the end of the war that the puzzle was solved by the Canadian psychiatrist J.T. McCurdy in a book called The Structure of Morale. McCurdy argued that when a bomb falls, it divides the affected population into three groups. The first group is the people killed. They're the ones who experienced of the bombing is obviously the most devastating. But as McCurdy pointed out, perhaps a bit callously, the morale of the community depends on the reaction of the survivors. So from that point of view, the killed do not matter. Put this way, the fact is obvious, corpses do not run about spreading panic. The next group he called the near misses. They feel the blast, they see the destruction, are horrified by the carnage, perhaps they are wounded, but they survive deeply impressed. Impression means here, a powerful reinforcement of the fear, reaction, in association with bombing. It may result in shock, a loose term that covers anything from a dazed state or actual stupor to jumpiness and preoccupation with the horrors that have been witnessed. Third, he said are the remote misses. These are the people who listen to the sirens, watch the enemy bombers overhead, and hear the thunder of exploding bombs. But the bombs hit down the street or the next block over, and for them, the consequences of a bombing – attack are exactly the opposite of the near-miss group. They survived. In the second or third time that happens, the emotion associated with the attack, McCurdy wrote, is a feeling of excitement with a flavor of invulnerability. A near-miss leaves you traumatized. A remote miss makes you think you are invincible. In diaries and recollections of Londoners who lived through the blitz, there are countless examples of this phenomenon. Here's one. When the first siren sounded, I took my children to our dugout in the garden, and I was quite certain we were all going to be killed. Then the all-clear went without anything having happened. Ever since we came out of the dugout, I have felt sure nothing would ever hurt us. Or consider this from the diary of a young woman whose house was shaken by a nearby explosion. I lay there feeling indescribably happy and triumphant. I've been bombed! I kept on saying to myself over and over again, trying the phrase on like a new dress to see how it fitted. I've been bombed. I've been bombed. Me. All right. Time out. This is an unbelievable thing to say. I've been bombed. I've been bombed. Could that possibly apply to us today, though, in the middle of a pandemic? I believe so. And we'll be back in one second to tell you why this is important for you. All right. We just heard about how the lady was saying, I've been bombed. I've been bombed. But this here just goes to show the power of the human mind. Here's why. This is important for us as leaders. Many of us live day to day trying to avoid some uncertain fear or dread. This can come in many forms. Fear of losing your job, fear of failing, fear of others rejecting you, the fear of being slandered, fear of failing that test, and on and on and on. While all these fears are legitimate, the point Gladwell is trying to make here is that the fear in and of itself is very rarely equivalent to the reality. We're masters of the imagination. If we're not careful, we give fear and the unknown too much credit. There have been many times in my life where I've run against one of these major fears. And on the other side, I wound up telling myself, wow, that really wasn't so bad. It might have not have been immediate, but over time, I've always, almost always found myself saying, I've been bombed. I've been bombed. I've been bombed. <laughs> Let's put fear in its proper place and know that if the worst happens, it will probably be okay. All right, back to the book. I've been bombed, me! It seems a terrible thing to say, but when many people were killed and injured last night, but never in my whole life have I experienced such pure and flawless happiness. So why were Londoners so unfazed by the Blitz? Because 40,000 deaths and 46,000 injuries spread across a metropolitan area of more than 8 million people means that there were more than many more remote Misses who were emboldened by the experience of being bombed than there were near Misses who were traumatized by it. We are all of us not merely liable to fear, McCarty went on. We are also prone to be afraid of being afraid. And the conquering of fear produces exhilaration. When we have been afraid that we may panic in an air raid, and when it has happened, we have exhibited to others nothing but a calm exterior, and we are now safe, the contrast between the previous apprehension and the present relief and feeling of security promotes a self-confidence that is the very father and mother of courage. In the midst of the blitz, a middle-aged laborer in the butt factory was asked if he wanted to be evacuated to the countryside. He'd been bombed out of his house twice, but each time he and his wife had been fine. He refused. "'What, and miss all this?' he exclaimed. "'Not for all the gold in China. "'There's never been nothing like it, never, and never will be again.'" The idea of desirable difficulties suggests that not all difficulties are negative. Being a poor reader is a real obstacle unless you are David Bowies and the obstacle turns you into an extraordinary listener, or unless you are Gary Cohn and that obstacle gives you the courage to take chances you never otherwise would have taken. McCurdy's theory of morale is a second broader perspective on the same idea. The reason Winston Churchill and the English military brass were so apprehensive about the German attacks on London was that they assumed that a traumatic experience like being bombed would have had the same effect on everyone, that the only difference between the near misses and remote misses would be the degree of trauma they suffered. But to McCurdy, the Blitz proved that traumatic experiences can have two completely different effects on people. The same event can be profoundly damaging to one group while leaving another better off. That man who worked in a button factory and that young woman whose house was shaken by the bomb were better off for their experience, weren't they? They were in the middle of a war. They couldn't change that fact, but they were freed of the kinds of fears that can make life during wartime unendurable. Dyslexia is a classic example of this same phenomenon. Many people with dyslexia don't manage to compensate for their disability. There are a remarkable number of dyslexics in prison, for example. These are people who have been overwhelmed by their failure at mastering the most basic of academic tasks. Yet this same neurological disorder in people like Gary Cohn and David Bowies can also have the opposite effect. Dyslexia blew a hole in Cohn's life, leaving a trail of misery and anxiety, but he was very bright and he had a supportive family and more than a little luck and enough other resources that he was able to weather the worst effects of the blast and emerge stronger. Too often, we make the same mistake as the British did and jump to the conclusion that there is only one kind of response to something terrible and traumatic. There isn't. There are two, which brings us back to Jay Freireich and the childhood he could not allow himself to remember. When Jay Freireich was nine years old, he contracted tonsillitis, He was very sick. The local physician, Dr. Rosenblum, came to his family's apartment to remove his inflamed tonsils. I never saw a man in those years, Freireich said. Everyone I knew was a woman. If you saw a man, he was dirty and in overalls. But Rosenblum, he had a suit and a tie, and he was dignified and kind. So from the age of 10, I used to dream about becoming a famous doctor. I never thought of any other career. In high school, his physics teacher took a shine to him and told him he should go to college. I said, what do I need? He said, well, probably if you get $25, I think you can make it. It was 1942. Things were better, but people still weren't very well off. $25 wasn't small stuff. I don't think my mother had ever seen $25. She said, well, let me see what I can do. A couple of days later, she appeared. She had found a Hungarian lady whose husband died and left her money. And believe it or not, she gave my mother $25. Instead of keeping it, my mother gave it to me. So here I am. I'm 16 years old and I'm very optimistic. Freireich took the train from Chicago to Champaign-Urbana where the University of Illinois was located. He rented a bedroom and a rooming house. He got a job waiting tables in a sorority house to pay his tuition with the added bonus that he could feed himself from the leftovers. He did well and was accepted to medical school and after which he began his internship at Cook County Hospital, the major public hospital in Chicago. Medicine in those years was a genteel profession. Doctors held a privileged social position and typically came from upper middle class backgrounds. Freireich was not like that. Even today in his 80s, Freireich is an intimidating man. Six foot four and thick through the chest and shoulders. His head is oversized even for a body as large as his, making him seem bigger still. He is a talker, fluent, relentless, and loud. His voice inflected with the hard vowels of his native Chicago. In moments of special emphasis, he has the habit of shouting and pounding the table with his fist, which memorably once resulted in his shattering a glass conference table. The immediate aftermath was later described as the only time anyone had ever seen Freireich silenced. At one point, he dated a woman from a much more affluent family than his. She was refined and sophisticated. Freireich was a bruiser from Humboldt Park who looked and sounded like the muscle from some depression era gangster. She took me to the symphony, It was the first time I'd ever heard of classical music, he remembered. I'd never seen a ballet. I'd never seen a play. Outside of our little TV that my mother purchased, I had no education to speak of. There was no literature, no art, no music, no dance, no nothing. It was just food. and not getting killed or beating up, I was pretty raw. Freireich was a research associate in hematology in Boston. From there, he was drafted into the Army and chose to complete his military service at the National Cancer Institute just outside of Washington, D.C. He was, by all accounts, a brilliant and dedicated physician, the first at the hospital in the morning and the last to leave. But he remained never more than a step away from his tumultuous beginnings. He had a volcanic temper. He had no patience, no gentleness. One colleague remembers his unforgettable first impression of Freireich, a giant in the back of the room yelling and screaming on the phone. Another remembers him as completely irrepressible. He would say whatever came into his mind. Over the course of his career, he would end up being fired seven times. The first time during his residency when he angrily defied the head nurse at Presbyterian Hospital in Chicago. One of his former co-workers remembers Fryright coming across a routine error made by one of his medical residents. A minor laboratory finding had been overlooked. The patient died, the doctor said. It wasn't because of this error. Jay screamed at him right there in the ward in front of five or six doctors and nurses. He called him a murderer, and the guy broke down and cried. Almost everything said about Freireich by his friends contains a but. I love him, but we nearly came to blows. I invited him to my house, but he insulted my wife. Freireich remains to this day one of my closest friends, said Evan Hirsch, an oncologist who worked with Freireich at the beginning of his career. We take him to our weddings and bar mitzvahs. I love him like he is a father, but he was a tiger in those days. We had several terrible run-ins. There were times I wouldn't speak to him for weeks. Is it all surprising that Freireich would be this way? The reason most of us do not scream murder at our coworkers is that we can put ourselves in their shoes. We can imagine what someone else is feeling and create the feeling in ourselves. We can take that route because we have been supported and comforted and understood in our suffering. That support gives us a model of how to feel for others. It is the basis for empathy. But in Freireich's formative years, every human connection ended in death and abandonment. And a childhood as bleak as that leaves only pain and anger in its wake. Once in the middle of a reminiscing about his career, Freireich burst into an attack on the idea that terminally ill cancer patients be given hospice care at the end of their lives. You have all these doctors who want to do hospice care. I mean, how can you treat a person like that? When Freiret gets worked up about something, he raises his voice and his jaw sets. Do you say, you've got cancer, you're going to certainly die, you've got pain and it's horrible, I'm gonna send you to a place where you can die pleasantly? I would never say that to a person. I would say, you're suffering, you've got pain, I'm gonna relieve your suffering. Are you gonna die? Maybe not. I see miracles every day. There's no possibility of being pessimistic when people are dependent on you for their only optimism. On Tuesday morning, I make teaching rounds and sometimes the medical fellows say, this patient is 80 years old, it's hopeless. Absolutely not, it's challenging, it's not hopeless. You have to come up with something. You have to figure out a way to help them because people must have hope to live. He was nearly shouting now. I was never depressed. I never sat with a parent and cried about a child dying. There's nothing I would ever do, that's nothing I would ever do in my role as a doctor. As a parent, I might do it. My kids died. I'd probably go crazy. But as a doctor, you swear to give people hope. That's your job. Fryerich continued on in this vein for several more minutes until the force of his personality became nearly overwhelming. We all want a physician who doesn't give up and who doesn't lose hope. But we also want a physician who can stand in our shoes and understand what we are feeling. We want to be treated with dignity. And treating people with dignity requires empathy. Could Fryerich do that? I was never depressed. I never sat with a parent and cried about a child dying. If we were asked if we would wish a childhood like Fryer X on anyone, we would almost certainly say no, because we could not imagine that any good could come from it. You can't have a remote miss from that kind of upbringing. Or can you? Leave it to Malcolm Gladwell to leave you on a cliffhanger like that. The rest of the chapter goes on to detail the incredible benefits Jay's hard upbringing would bring to his career. My hope is that this chapter gives you hope no matter what difficulty you're facing. If you'll allow it, the pain and difficulty you're facing will leave you better on the other side in so many ways. If you want to finish out this chapter of the book, please use the link in our show notes to buy it. You'll get a great book at no extra cost to you, and we'll get a portion of the proceeds to continue producing the best content possible for you all. That's our third book for your next chapter. Over the coming weeks, we're going to keep bringing you some of the best chapters from the books we love, coaching you to ring them out for every ounce of leadership growth. This is your host, Jake Welchens. And remember, life's too short for bad books. If you know someone out there who would benefit from today's episode, please share it. Let's build this thing together. I need your help. To connect or see what I'm reading right now, follow me on my Instagram at Jake Welchens or my Goodreads profile at www.goodreads.com slash Jake Welchins. This podcast is brought to you by the Launchpad Podcast Collection and performed and written by myself, Jake Welchins. Podcast production by the one and only Logan Bonjean. See you next time on Readout.